Does it just smell bad up front? Everybody's like five rows back at least. <laughs> Nobody wants to tell me about my breath. Is that what it is? Hey, we are in, uh, in Isaiah 41 tonight. Um, if you were with us last week, you know, we, uh, in chapter 40, uh, we covered quite a bit of ground. But uh, we saw when Isaiah... Um, you know, talked about how make straight the way of the Lord, and uh, um, talked about how the nations are not just not important to the Lord, they're less than nothing. In other words, he, he kind of finds nations to be uh, a problem, and I think we, we can all see that still today. Uh, but he also talked a little bit about um, idols, and a, a few times in that chapter he said, to whom will you liken God? Right? Who do you? Who are you trying to compare me to? And he reminded us that, you know, that he uh, he holds, uh, you know, the earth and uh, he he's above the circle of the earth. It said, you know, and he he holds everything in his hand, basically. And so he's going to kind of continue that train of thought tonight as we get into chapter forty-one. He's going to put some of those idols that he talked about in chapter forty. He's going to put them on trial in in forty-one. So let's pray. We'll get to it and. Uh, uh, See what it has to say. Lord, we thank you this evening for allowing us to be here and uh, just giving us the opportunity to, to fellowship in the middle of the week. We all uh, could use a little, a little refresher, uh, and we're, we're thankful for the privilege to be able to do that. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you'd help us to understand your word and, un- and through that to understand who we are in you uh, and, and to just know you better. And we pray for that. Uh, to be what happens from this message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Isaiah 41, uh, verse 1. It says, Coastlands, listen to me in silence. And let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward. Then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Now, coastlands or islands is something that Isaiah, he's used this imagery a few times in the book. It's basically how he refers to uh, distant lands or, in, you know, people at the ends of the earth, right? They, uh, back then, sailing was, you know, there were only a few um, cultures that even uh, would brave the seas. So the idea of someone living on an island out in the middle of the ocean, that was as far as the world went, you know, in, in his mind. But, so basically he says, look, the distant lands, everybody at the ends of the earth, just be silent. And he says, let the people gain new strength, right? Let them uh, pump each other up. Because at the end of chapter 40, he just talked about, how he promised that those who wait on the Lord, uh, that they'll renew their strength and, you know, and they'll fly like eagles and all that stuff. So those who wait on the Lord, they'll get new strength. But everybody else who has, is not, who is distant from Him, uh, He's calling them into the courtroom, basically. Uh, and He says, you know, everybody who's far from Me, uh, you come in My courtroom and go ahead and work up your strength. Eat, eat your Wheaties uh, before you come and stand before the judge. He says, let them come forward and then let them speak. So those of you who have depended on idols, right, the people in chapter 40, uh, when you step into my courtroom, first of all, be silent, because you're, you're in front of the judge, right? Be silent, 
because of my majesty. But I will give you every opportunity to make your case. I always think it's funny when I hear people talk big and bad, you know, all, all tough about, you know, when I die, I'm going to tell God, you know, whatever. I'm like, yeah, I bet you will. I bet when you stand before the creator of the universe, you'll be real brave, you know. Because uh, in the Bible, we see when people even encountered angels, they hit the ground terrified. And they're, uh, you know, not even close to the Lord's power. But anyway, so he says, all right, you're going to come into my courtroom. Go ahead, work up your nerve. Verse 2. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and, and subdues kings. Uh, he makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not been, traversing with his feet. So this is a little bit confusing, and I, I looked at, I don't even know how many commentaries, uh, but it really was split kind of down the middle on uh, what this chapter is taught, or who this chapter is talking about. Uh, and basically, there were two different views. First is a historic view that, that God is referring to things that happened in the past. Uh, and then or the other view was that he's talking about things that are going to happen in the future. So looking back at things that happened in the past, the, the commentators say that it was, he's talking about Abraham. Uh, and that could be, right? Abraham was, he called Abraham from uh, Ur, which is a land east of the promised land. So he is one who, who the Lord called from the east. Um, but he also, uh, you know, it could be he's talking about things in the, in the future. Because in chapter 44 and 45, he just comes right out and says it. He starts talking about Cyrus, Cyrus the Great who won't be born for another 150 years. This is the guy who, uh, he, you know, defeats Babylon, basically. And, and God calls him uh, a shepherd. He calls him his anointed instrument. Even though he's not a follower of Yahweh, he's not a Jew, he's not, you know, a believer, but he was God's instrument. God, God used him, and he's the one who let the Jews go back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Which is, just, it just kind of, it's a nice reminder that, you know, God can use a godless politician as his instrument and to accomplish his plan. You know, we should always be praying for our leaders, no matter what uh, political affiliations they have. Uh, and we just pray that hopefully they're going to do things that um, accomplish God's will in a positive way and you know because sometimes God's instrument is someone who brings about judgment too but um, but you know he this was a godless man who uh, God still used him but he, he talks about whoever this person is whether it's Abraham or Cyrus or someone else he says that they're this person subdues kings so back in Genesis 14 if you're following you know the Abraham narrative uh, there's a little story where he chases five different kings who they've kidnapped his nephew Lot. And um, there was like Amraphel and, and Tidal and whoever the other three kings were, I don't remember. Uh, so that happens, right? So that fits. Then there's also Cyrus in the future. 
Uh, he unites the Medes against the Persians, or the Medes and the Persians, and they defeat Lydia and Asia, Asia Minor, and then they eventually conquer Babylon. So he, you know, subdued kings. And both men accomplish things by moving into new territory, which is what Isaiah describes here. So, here's the, here's the deal. Is he speaking of something in the past or something in the future? Is he speaking of history or prophecy? The reason I even bring this up is we shouldn't ever be at odds over non-essentials. And unfortunately, it happens a lot. When there are good arguments on uh, both sides of an argument, my stance is yes. Right? Is it this or is it that? Yeah. Sure. Could be. Could be right? Um, is God sovereign? Or does he give man free will? Right? That's a big one people debate about. And the answer is yeah. It's not either or, it's yes and, right? It can be both. Um, because, you know, we're, we're talking about things that are really too big for our little finite brains to be able to handle. So was, was God in, at work in the past through Abraham? Absolutely. Uh, will he be involved in fut- events that happen in the future from Isaiah's time? Well, of course. Right? It's both. Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers, uh, said this. He said that uh, in essentials, unity, right? The, The main things should be the main thing. We need to agree that is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Then we're on the same page, right? In essentials, unity. In non essentials, liberty right we don't have to agree on everything it's okay that we can disagree in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty in all things charity got to give grace to people that you know you don't have to believe everything i believe uh you know you go to a different church that has a different bylaws and doctrines and whatever do we both agree that Jesus is the way to heaven? All right, we can, we can get along. So we tend to argue over questions that um, really are not the main point, right? And so a lot of times we argue over questions that were never intended to be answered, right? That the Bible never addresses that because it's not the main point. When we argue about things about angels, you know why we can argue about that? Because there's not a lot of information about angels because the Bible isn't about them. Anyway, that's, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox about that one. Verse 4, he says, uh, Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. So he says, the real question isn't, you know, is he referring to the past or to the future? It's who 
was, is in charge, whether it's in the past or in the future? Is life just random chaos, uh, or is there something greater at work? Is there a plan? Is there a creator? And God says, I am the one, right? I am the bookend of all creation. And that's something that just, I, it continues to just blow my mind when I think about it, that time, according to God's word, time has a beginning and it will have an end. When we think of time, it's, well, it just goes on forever. And God says, no, that w- there will be an end to time. And he exists outside of time. So that means he can stand and see the beginning and the end and everything in between all at once. Try to figure that out. But he is the bookend of all of that. Verse 5, it says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. In other words, when... When God moves, right, whether it was through Abraham or through Cyrus or whenever God is doing what God does, whenever he intervenes supernaturally in a, in a natural world, people see that and their reaction tends to be fear, right? The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. And each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong, right? They're trying to... You know, be of good courage, right? You know, try, trying to cheer each other up. Verse 7, So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. And so if you remember from last week, he talked about the people that make idols and how they'll add some extra nails to make sure it doesn't tip over. And he's like, what kind of God is that? It's embarrassing if your God will fall over in a storm, right? That's not a God. But here he's, he's referring back to these same people. So these people, when they, they encounter signs of the real judge, of a real God with real power, they try to encourage one another. And what does that fear drive them to do? It, 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 Rather than turn to this God, right, a God that's real, they try to prop up their false God, add a few extra nails to it. Maybe it'll hold up. So we mentioned when we first started this book that there are a ton of parallels between Isaiah in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament, that Isaiah is basically the Paul of the Old Testament Paul is the Isaiah of the New Testament. They echo a lot of the same messages, um, and, and, and Paul addresses the same concept in several places, but I'm going to read you one section from Romans 1. This is what I think Isaiah is describing. Uh, Romans 1, verse 20, says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, all you have to do is look at the creation and know there is a creator, right? Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. We probably all can picture someone like that, right? That they're so smart, they're stupid. 
You know what I mean? Like they're book smart, but can't, you know, couldn't start their car without help, you know. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul describes the same thing, and we see it still today, the people that have exchanged worshiping the Creator for worshiping the creation. And so we encounter things that should point us to God. And that's too scary, so we, we realign ourselves and point ourselves to some other God of, of our own creation to give us comfort. Because an idol is not just a statue on a shelf. It can be something inside yourself, right? An idol is anything, any person, anyone, anything that you turn to first for your comfort. When you're afraid, when you're stressed, when you're upset, what is the thing you run to first? that's your God. Isaiah 41, verse 8, he says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. Remember, Israel, it means governed by God, right? These are the people that don't want to listen to God. And he says, but you, Israel, remember, remember, who, we made a deal that you would be my people and I would be your God. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And he says, do not fear, for I am with you. And it's both a command and a promise. Right? He says, do not fear, and here's why you can, how you can do that, knowing that I am with you. You know, he, he tells us, that's one of the f- expressions we see the most in the Bible. We see the, the most expressed is um, to flee idols, and then do not fear. Because those are things that come naturally to us. And God tells us over and over that, you know, if, if I am for you, who can be against you? I'll be honest with you. I'm, um, was when I was years old, and, and I'm still a little bit afraid of the dark. Not, you know, not like when I was a kid, but... You know, if I watch the right movie before I go to bed, and then I go upstairs and the hall lights out, I'm moving cautiously just in case there's an assassin or something. You never know. But it's a weird phenomenon that 
if there's just one more person with you, and it doesn't even have to be someone bigger or stronger or tougher than you, right? Just somebody else with you. All of a sudden, you're, you're not so afraid of the dark. Maybe it's, you know, the male ego where, like, now I have to pretend I'm not scared because there's someone with me. But, but when we're, the, the dark isn't so scary when we're not alone. And so God reminds us of that simple thing. Look, you are never alone. I am with you. Even to the end of the age. Verse 11, Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. So, of course, he's obviously pointing to something in the far future, right? Because the reality is, is we all have people who quarrel with this, and we all have people who, you know, are not our biggest fans. But he says, one day, that'll be different. In the meantime, just know that no weapon formed against you will prosper. Because God made some promises that he, he always keeps his promise. Way back in Genesis 12, he said this to Abraham in verse 1. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? That's a promise he made. And he doesn't forget his promises. That's why I still think, no matter what your political views and affiliations are, I still think it's a really bad idea to, bet, to, to be against Israel. Because God made some promises to them, and I don't want to be on the other end of that stick. You know? But he's made promises to all those who believe, all those who are, are children of God. You know, something interesting, this is, this, I'm throwing this one in for free. Uh, when, he, when he called Abram to go forth, right, go from your country, he didn't give him any details. He just said, you just go to a land that I will show you. Right? So often we want God to, like, we, we want to know God's will for our lives, and we think that means, like, a ten-step checklist of here's everything I should do. And that's not how he works. He says, no, you take this step, and then I'll show you the next step. Just take the one that I've already made clear to you. Anyway, so Isaiah 41, verse 13, he says, For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. You know, sometimes I, uh, I hold my kids' hands um, to keep them from danger, especially when they're little. You know, if you're walking through a crowd or you're near a street or whatever, you hold onto their hand tightly to keep them from danger. As they get older, sometimes I hold their hands just because I love them. And, I, you know, it embarrasses them a little bit that dad is holding their hand in public. Sometimes they even get mad uh, when I want to hold their hand. But, you know, even still to this day, not one of them is strong enough to pull their hand out of mine. So you might think all those promises that he made, like, that's 
he made those to Abraham because he's this great father of the faith. He's made promises to, you know, the disciples. He probably made promises to my grandma because she was nice and sweet. But does any of that apply to, to me? Because, you know, I know me. Right? I know all the deepest, darkest things that nobody else knows about me. In verse 14, he says this. He says, do not fear, you worm. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea, but God, God's not into like trying to lower your self-esteem. Uh, but he points out here, like, look, he was calling them earlier, he was calling them Israel. But all of a sudden he says, I, I, I know who you are. Israel was Jacob first, right? Jacob was the supplanter. He was the, the, the heel snatcher. He was a sneak and a cheat and, a, you know, all those things. He knows, he knows full well everything there is about Jacob. He says, I know who you are and nothing about you surprises me. So he calls them worms, but it's not, I don't think he's trying to insult them. He's using a little imagery here. You know, a worm has no weapons. The only thing a worm has is a mouth. That's it. And that's the only thing you have in this life that is really going to be effective for you. You you have the sword of the spirit, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. When we when we read in Ephesians about the armor of God, everything in that list is defensive except one thing and that is the Word of God. That's the only, only weapon we have. And he says, here's what's going to happen with that weapon, that one lowly weapon that you have. Verse 15, he says, Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them, but you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. You know, Jesus said in Matthew um, 16 or 17 that the faith the size of a mustard seed could move mountains. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 26, again, Paul gives us, kind of holds the mirror of Scripture up before us. And he says this, he says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not so that they may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. If you're thinking lowly of yourself and you think, I am not up to the task, right? I'm not up to this. I can't do this on my own. Good. Because that leaves room for God. That's when he really likes to get involved. I was talking with uh, Eric the other day about 
you know, people will like to misquote Scripture and say that, oh, God won't give you more than you can handle. And I'm like, that's the opposite of what it says. He will absolutely give you more than you can handle so that you will turn to Him, so that you will give Him uh, the opportunity to be the Lord of your life rather than you. Moving on, Isaiah 41, verse 17. It says, The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none. And their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. Something easy to read past here, right? He says, I, the Lord, will answer. That means they've been talking to him, right? He answers when you call. So they're praying, they're crying out. And I think sometimes we stay in this this thirsty, spiritually dried out condition um, of our own accord, right? Because we haven't prayed to God about it. The Bible says that we have not because we ask not. Verse 18, he says, I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia in the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress. Now you notice all of those trees, those, none of those are fruit trees. They're all shade trees. Because in the desert, uh, when you're thirsty, food doesn't matter so much, right? We need something to drink, and we need shelter. Those are the greatest needs of a weary traveler, uh, water and shelter. He says, I'm going to do all these things. I want to make sure that they have what they need. I'm going to make sure they have water. I'm going to make sure that there are trees planted all throughout the wilderness that they're wandering through. And why would he go through all that trouble for someone like me? In verse 20, it says, that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. You know, he has resources that we can't even imagine. And he wants to bless you because you're his child. You carry his name. And sometimes I think he he blesses us, um, I know he blesses us in spite of us, right? Some people have this uh, mixed up idea that, well, if I do these good things, God has to bless me. Now, there are some conditional promises where he says, if you do this, I'll do that. But he never promises that, you know, he's not like a piggy bank or a it's not magic, right? You know, you do follow these three steps and the spell equals this blessing. He's not, he's not under that kind of obligation. Sometimes, though, he blesses us in spite of us so that he gets the glory. When something amazing is accomplished uh, in his name by foolish people, and so he gets the glory. In Matthew 5, verse 6, Jesus said this. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And again, a few chapters later in chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all who are weary 
and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Right? If you're thirsty, come and drink from the fountain. If you're tired, come and find your rest in him. That's, that's the thing he wants to do most in your life. It's to give you what you need to get through this wilderness. Back to the idols that are standing uh, before the judge. We'll see if we can wrap up this trial. Isaiah 41, verse 21, he says, Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. He says, look, you false gods, just do something that shows you are a god. Show us how you've actually accomplished anything in the past. Predict something about the future. If you're a god, show us through prophecy. Actually predict something. Because, you know, we've talked about this a lot here lately, but, you know, the writings of Confucius and the Quran and uh, the Upanishads of the Hindus, all those things have one thing in common, and that is that they do not contain predictive prophecy. The Bible, one-third of the Bible is prophecy. And over and over and over we find it fulfilled. Because God is the bookend, right? He is the first and the last, and he knows all of it. So he says, in my, you come into my courtroom, show me. If you're God, show me. Verse 24, behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. So now he's talking about the future, right? So remember earlier I said the commentators say, well, it's, this group says it's Abraham, this group says it's Cyrus. Now God is talking about the future, and he says, this one is going to come from the north. So Cyrus, he was from the east of Israel, but he invaded Babylon from the north. Verse 26, it says, Who has declared this from the beginning that we might know? Or from former times that we may say he is right? Surely there was no one who declared, surely there was no one who proclaimed, Surely there was no one who heard your words. He says, who has declared this stuff? Not your idols. Not Confucius, not Muhammad, not Ishtar, not wealth, not, uh, not higher education, not philosophy. None of that stuff predicted this stuff. I did. Verse 27, formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are. And to Jerusalem, I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there is no one, and there is no counselor among them who, if I ask, can give an answer. Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. 
So, was he talking about Abraham or Cyrus? I think it was both, right? He talked about some things in the past. He talks about some things that are going to come in the future. As we get into chapter 43, 44, he's just going to come right out and, you, and call him Cyrus by name 150 years before he's born. But when he wraps up this chapter, he says all of these idols are worthless. So I just encourage you, right? Take a good look at all of your idols. Because you've got some. Either they're either on the shelf or in yourself. Whatever it is, does that thing answer the questions of your soul? Does it ever actually give you what you're looking for when you turn to it? Now, to contrast all of that, we're not going to cover this chapter this week, but just, just to keep our train of thought, right? He talked about idols last week. He put the, tri- the idols on trial this week, and he said, look, they're all worthless. The first verse of chapter 42, he says this, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I have, my, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He's going to start describing Jesus' is calling, it sounds like. Yeah. He's going to start describing the one that we can turn to for answers. Before I pray, I just I, I got to tell you, this song has been stuck in my head all through this sermon. That's how messed up my brain is, is I have music playing while I'm talking. But it's an old song. Uh, uh, Put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. Do you know that song? Put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the sea. Uh, take a look at yourself. And you can look at others differently by putting your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee, right? That won't be on the test later, but uh, maybe uh, you young people, go Google that song, see if you can find it. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you this evening uh, for just giving us the opportunity to look into how you've worked throughout the centuries, that you were working, you were active in the past, you're working today, and we know that you already know what the future holds. Lord, where, when we have anxiety, when we're tempted to turn to, to our idols that we've built in our lives, Lord, we just pray that you would remind us, help us stay on track to, to turn to you first, to give you the opportunity to be the God that you say you are, that we know you are. Lord, we just pray for your blessing in our lives in our hearts, and we pray you come and come quickly. Everybody said, amen. All right, ready? Break.